Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Tonight's program, I think you're all going to like. We start off with, uh, right off the top of the uh, program with Bill Cummings. Bill, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Don, and thank you for having me on the show today, too, as well. Well, when you uh, when uh, a notice came across my desk, I really decided that you should come on and talk about it. We're going to talk about the 13 most common mistakes. Uh, as told by Bill Cummings. So, Bill, we always ask our guests to tell a little bit about themselves first. Sure. Well, again, my name is Bill Cummings, and, um, you know, personally, I'm married to a a beautiful and wonderful wife who puts up with me. Uh, Her name is Kimberly, and we have five grown children. We're officially uh, empty nesters, and the last of the two, the twins, are seniors in college this, this year, so we we, we hope to get them off the payroll as well when they graduate from college. <laughs> and we live in uh, beautiful, sunny Tampa, Florida. I know a lot of people are envious this time of the year because it's very warm, and um, the golfing is very good this time as well. well uh, I'm a little envious. Of, uh, when we had five degrees last week, I thought about moving, but uh, we're yeah. in the uh, Well, Bill, uh, I'm going to let the the floor be yours. Um, okay, I, well, go ahead. Yeah, Don. Um, yeah, let, let me just briefly just give a, a brief uh, background to to how I got started in business. Uh, I was the chief financial officer for about 15 years for a very large firm. We we did between 150 and 200 million um, in sales annually, and one of the luxuries of owning a large business, or I'm sorry, being the CFO of a large business, um, is that you have a tax planning department. And amongst other things, as like paying taxes, it's one of its sole purposes was to, you know, pay the least amount of taxes legally possible. In fact, I often chuckled and told people that they often paid less taxes than me their their own CFO, you know, and they made significantly more money than me. And so that that was one of those kind of aha moments in my lifetime because I knew that the traditional accounting model um, was broken, meaning that most accounting firms do hundreds and hundreds of tax returns and they don't have time to be proactive. And most small business owners don't know the difference between proactive tax planning and just doing taxes. I mean, oftentimes business owners uh, will take their stack of receipts in February to their accountant and think that they're going to get the, you know, pay the least amount in taxes. Well, if it's past the end of the year, then you really can't change very much because the year's over with. Um, And so that's kind of what propelled me to start my own firm because I knew that if I created a model that I could show my expertise and help business owners pay the least amount of taxes, then it would be a successful model. It's also what 
spawned me to to or encouraged me to to write my book called Bad Luck or Bad Business: Thirteen Most Common Tax Mistakes Made by Business Owners, because I wanted to create awareness that small businesses could have this same type of luxury as large businesses, and that is to help them try to pay the least amount of taxes legally possible. So that's, that's how I got started in my business. That is a noble uh, ambition, so keep going. Okay. Um, and so, um, again, one of, one of the biggest mistakes that um, business owners make is, and, and I have it the very first one in my book, it's called failing to plan, okay? And so if, if you're one of those business owners that show up at the in February to your accountant and you bring a stack of receipts, the, the, the only thing you can really do to reduce your taxes at that point is put something in a, you know, qualified plan like an IRA or a SEP or something like that. So uh, my suggestion to make sure that you have an accountant that meets with you before year-end and really goes through your personal business, okay? And they actually should be meeting you with, with you quarterly going over your sales, going over everything, going over all the new changes that have happened. I mean, every year, just, just take Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. That act alone changed so many tax codes, lines of tax code. Um, and in 2013, there's all these deductions that expired. And so most people don't know that, and they expect their CPAs or their accountants to know that. But if you didn't plan before year-end, you can't take advantage of anything that's happened or that, is, that has expired. So, again, the biggest mistake is that people fail to plan and they don't understand the difference between planning and doing taxes. Planning is being proactive. You're, you're almost making history and doing taxes and preparing taxes, you're recording history. Okay, So there's a big difference between the two of them. So that's that's probably the biggest mistake uh, that that most business owners make. And, and let's face it, we're all busy as a business owner. I'm a business owner. I have two locations. I have staff, and you know, planning is something that most people probably dread because they want to go out and bring sales in. But you got to remember that taxes are one of your biggest expenses, and so. If you can spend a little bit of time on tax planning and really going through your taxes, that's something that you can reduce your your expense on your tax expense, and that's money in your pocket. So most people understand that because as a small business, you know you're always wanting to reinvest in your business, and saving on one of your biggest expenses is something that that you should be doing. Uh, Bill, can I interrupt you here and ask sure. a question? Which uh, we just completed the survey. And uh, one of the most vexing things small businesses uh, said in terms of the tax, uh, you mentioned Obamacare. There are a lot of changes yeah. <coughs> this year. Uh, that is correct. Uh, have, um, have you looked at it and seen some of the things, anything that uh, really uh, popped out at you that um, changed, that significant change that could help if the small business uh, leaders ch started now? Really yes, it's, yes, it's it's a perfect. Well, well, first of all, I mean, we've been using the word small business, and and I like to tell clients, listen, small business to me me means less than fifty employees. You can have a lot of sales, so I, I kind of define it at least for me number of employees. So, if you have less than fifty employees, um, then you know you don't have to uh, have insurance for the Affordable Care Act. Now, I've done a number of presentations. I just did one to the Florida Institute of CPA. We have a big conference at a local university, and I did a whole update on, on the Affordable Care Act. And I'll just give you some examples I did for, for my own business. Um, one of the things that we did was we looked at, we had an insurance agent that came in, a reputable insurance agent, and went through. And what we found out was a, some of our employees were eligible for federal tax credits because um, because some of the insurance is subsidized. So what we did was we sent them to the, to the exchange, and we're on a federal exchange in the state of Florida, and instead of paying him directly and the staff directly for the insurance, 
um, we actually created a medical expense reimbursement program. It's called a MERP Section 105. And so what we did was we allowed an allowance up to a certain dollar amount, and if they don't use it, then they lose it. So for me, it helps me control my costs because I know that the, the amount that they're going to spend every month is capped at a certain dollar amount. And from the standpoint of the employees, their, their insurance is cheaper, um, at least the ones that are getting you know, federal subsidies. One of the biggest things that happened was in 2010, small businesses, ones with 25 employees or less, were eligible for a 35% tax credit okay, on the, on the cost of insurance. So, for example, if you have three employees now, you have to exclude the owners and the, and the spouses and the children, but if you have employees and you had a group plan and you paid that insurance, there was a tax credit of up to 35% of the cost. There was a governmental accounting, um, the GAO, Governmental Accounting Office, did a survey in 2010 and said 4 million businesses, small businesses were eligible for that tax credit, and only 170,000 people or businesses actually applied for it. So if you, if you have 25 or less employees and you had a group plan, then you, you might have been eligible for this credit. The good news is that you can go back and, re, and amend your returns for the last few years. And in 2014, that credit goes up to 50%, 5 not not 15, 5-0% if you offer group insurance to your employees. Wow. So that's one of the biggest things that I see that, – that's the one of the biggest mistakes that are, are the ones that one of the things we look for for new clients coming in. But but I thought that if I if I uh, got my insurance for my uh, company, I wasn't eligible for any of these uh, subsidies. That is correct, but but that's a completely different scenario. If if you the subsidy is for the business owner. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, my okay. firm offered a group insurance plan last year, and we paid the insurance for our staff members and ourselves. I was eligible for, my S corporation was eligible for a 35% tax credit for all non-owners of the business. So I couldn't do it on my children because they work for me as well. But, but my staff, my admin, my customer service people, um, because I paid the group insurance, me as the business owner, I got a 35% tax credit because it was a group plan. And that's for companies under 25 employees. Yeah, and they, and they phase out by also they have a cap. Like if, if all your employees made $50,000 a year, you'd probably get nothing. So it graduates down. So if your average salary is about 30,000 or 35,000 then the credits probably about 30%. So there's a grid that we have an excel spreadsheet we actually use that so again if you have lower waged employees especially at 25,000 to $30,000 you're you're probably eligible for a credit of up to 35%. And again in 2014 that credit jumps up to 50%. Wow. Well, that's something. But but uh, uh, if I if I decided to do it now, uh, uh, I'm on I'm on a group plan. I, can I change over and still be uh, eligible? Well, are are you on a group plan for yourself? Oh uh, well, um, I meant myself. Um, uh, if I had a company, and I had right. an, an well, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, I just have to look at my plan and, and my average employee salaries and figure out that if I'm correct. Okay, that is that, that's correct. Yeah, and your and again, your 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 accounting firm again. If they're just, I mean, we we brought in all of our clients this year and brought in insurance agents and we sat down with every single person and said, does it make sense to offer a group plan? Because some of the because you have to go to the shop exchange, which isn't even available now. But sometimes the group plans were more expensive, even with the tax credit. But it was an excellent planning opportunity to go through each, 
each one and say, hey, let's look at the census of your employees. Let's look at will they get a subsidy from the government or will the firm get a subsidy? So like from my own firm, I had to look at both to see which was more profitable for me. But this year we're doing something different because the group plan was so expensive for us, we couldn't do it. So even with that 35% tax credit or 50% for, for 2014, it wouldn't have been. It would have still been more money than just letting my employees go to the uh, to the exchange, and and they you know they they found some pretty decent policies on there. Right. Well, let's go on to the next. Uh, I could talk about this all night, but let's go on. Yes. To, let's go on to another um, uh, tax one, please. Okay. I'm sorry. Are you asking the question, or you want me to? <laughs> just go start. Just start yourself, and uh, you're, okay. you're good at, and you've got the presentation. I almost hate to interrupt you, so keep going. Right. Well, let, let me just go. And how much time do we have, Don? Well, we've got at least another ten or fifteen minutes. Oh, okay. I, I was uh, I was under the assumption we had fifteen. So, <laughs> well, oh. let, let me go through audit paranoia. That, that's the nice thing is I run the program, and if the, if the uh, guest is interesting like you are, let's keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the other, let, let me talk about the other uh, big mistake that people have, and that is forming their, their, their business entity. Uh, I often ask people, well, why did, you, why did you do an LLC or an S-Corp or C-Corp or whatever it was? And they just said, well, I went on, you know, one of the online and, that's what somebody said, LLC. So, um, you know, usually there's legal reasons why you do that. And, and I'm not an attorney, so I can't give legal advice, but, you know, you should always look at the legal side of it. And there's a big difference between an S-Corp, um, S-Corporation, LLCs, C-Corporation, and sole proprietor. So sometimes people will start off as a sole proprietor and then never change anything. And... Just because you start off a certain way doesn't mean you need to keep it that way. Um, so, for example, we we had a, a young doctor couple that came in um, uh, recently, and they were set up as LLCs. And you know, I asked them why, and they said, "Well, that's because everybody else was set up that way." But after looking at their circumstances and doing a tax plan for them. Uh, we uh, changed it through the IRS and changed it to an S-Corp. And because of this change, um, we saved them about $15,000 in taxes this year by going from an LLC to an S-Corp. Um, and then with that savings that they have, the $15,000, I said, listen, I you know, I know you want to spend it, but I think you should put that in your retirement fund so that you can save money for you know, the day you want to become financially independent. And so that tax savings that they have, they actually are setting up a SEP IRA for themselves. And they were just elated because, you know, they had never gotten this type of advice before on looking, you know, does it make sense to have that type of entity? Because we all change over time, and sometimes every entity has its own uniqueness to it. And so you really have to ask every year, does it make sense to still have the entity this way? Well, let's um, use and, that. And, and it, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you first. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and the entity, I mean, one of the things that I talk about the book is, uh, in the book is I call it audit paranoia, and the most audited entities are really sole proprietors, people that just have Schedule C on their tax return. So that's the most audited um, business because um, one of the reasons it's less formal. Look, you know, you're just a sole proprietor. Um, if you make less than a hundred thousand in the sole proprietor, they're really a target because a lot of people have part-time businesses. And the way the IRS looks at it is, you know, these people don't have professional accounting people doing their work. So as you go up the ladder, the LLC, um, the S corp is is the least audited, and also the C corp because when you start getting into C corps and S corps. You, you have to do proper accounting. You have to have a balance sheet. You have to have an income statement. You have to file taxes. There's, there's, uh, you know, you have to have payrolls. So you have to have a payroll company. So there, there's a lot, a lot more professionals involved 
Um, and so they figure that the standards for the financial statements are much better than for sole proprietor. So that's also a consideration for, for my clients as well. Well, Bill, let me ask you, uh, going back to that example, what made it the difference that going from one, from the um, proprietorship to the LLC, that enabled them to save the $15,000? Right. Well, the, the, the biggest difference, and I give an example in the book, um, is when you have an LLC, especially single-member LLC, all the income is treated as wages, all your net profit. Okay. So if an individual had $120,000 of net income, then you're going to pay your Social Security tax of 15% and then your normal federal tax. Okay and whatever tax bracket you're in, 20%. Well, with an S-Corp, what, what we typically do is we look at that function and say, okay, what would you normally have to pay somebody to run your business? In this case, we went to salary.com, we went to a, a website and said, for a first-year um, therapist, they normally get paid $55,000 a year. So what we did was we, we reduced their salary to $55,000 a year. So what happened was they paid Social Security tax on $55,000, not on the $100,000. And the remainder of $45,000 was considered what we call K-1 income, profits from the corporations. Those are tax, but you don't pay the 15% um, Social Security tax on it. And so the numbers worked out to about $15,000 in savings between the, between the two doctors. So it's basically saving on self-employment tax. Oh. Well, see, I learned something. Okay. That's what I love about this program. I learn something new every day. Yeah. Um, now, I cautious people, hey, you're, you know, you're, you're not putting toward, toward your own Social Security, so you're, you know, I mean, some people are like, well, that's great. So what I encourage people to do is actually take that tax savings and put it into a retirement account. So, you know, instead of instead of having it go to the Social Security and having them manage your money, you're you're managing it yourself. So, for a lot of people, they're like, you know, they you know that's a good plan for them. You know, okay. another another area where it makes sense to have a, a an LLC is if you have a lot of out of pocket medical expenses because most people. Um, you know, you can claim your health insurance deduction, but the for to claim medical expenses, um, you know, most people don't because there's such a higher threshold. Um, it's 10% now of adjusted gross income in order to everything above that. So it's very difficult to claim out-of-pocket expenses. So we encourage people that have S-Corps to have an HSA. Um, if they have an LLC, then it's possible to create what's called a medical expense reimbursement program where you reimburse um, yourself and family members for out-of-pocket expenses. Now, there's some legal things that you have to do to make it, you know, to, to make it legitimate that you, that you have to follow with the, with the IRS, and, of course, we have all the forms. So that, that's another one where, you know, we always go through and say, tell me about your medical and do you have a lot of out-of-pocket? Because a lot of times we've switched people from S-Corps to LLCs because there's a way we can claim those deductions through their business. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Let's, let's try another one of your uh, 13. Okay. Um, well, what, one of the things that um, is, is a big one is uh, missing family employment, okay? I call it income shifting. So as you start to make more money, so like in um, 2013, there were two more tax brackets, okay? So um, just saw a couple today, and, you know, they're, they're up in the 28 to 30%, and they're like, wow, we, we owe a lot more than last year. And, you know, um, I mean, we had gone through their plan at the end of the year. And um, so one of the things that, um, that, that we were looking at is all of the new taxes um, 
for, to help pay for the Affordable Care Act. There's a 3.8% um, Medicare tax. There's 3.8% on um, investment income. So, again, that was another planning area as well. Uh, Obamacare has really changed the, uh, the landscape in a lot of different ways, hasn't it? It, it has, and especially, you know, the, the more the more um, the more income you make. But where where I was going with this is that this couple's having a baby, and and I said, perfect, you can you can start doing income shifting, and they're like, what is that? <laughs> and it, it's simple, um, you know, if you're in a 28% tax bracket, um, and you employ your your children they're in a much lower tax bracket so for example my twins all of my kids work for me when they were in college okay and the idea is when I pay them they're in a much lower tax bracket than what I am so I can shift income to them and they can pay lower taxes now there's some limits because of um, the kitty tax rules but for example um, when the twins graduate, they're both going to go to graduate school. Once they graduate college, they're not considered kid, you know, children anymore from the IRS standpoint. And, you know, I can have one of them work for me and shift income to them, and um, they're in a much lower tax bracket. So, you know, we can save a certain amount of money doing it like that. Um, and it's not just it's not just children, but sometimes you can hire, um, you know, parents, um, and and let's say you were giving money to your parents for something well it, it might be easier for for you to just pay them a salary and then you know they're they're going to pay tax on it but you're going to get to deduct it and they're they're in a lower tax bracket so you're kind of helping both situations out so family employment's a big one when you have um, children especially if they're going to college, there's a number of programs that you can use, um, like a tuition reimbursement program that um, you can pay your children once they reach the age of 21. That uh, there's other limitations too, but you know I can give, I can reimburse my child $5,000 for tuition reimbursement. These are the same type of programs that big companies have, you know, a tuition reimbursement program. So when they go to school. Um, and they show their grades, and so I can write that off through my business, and I don't have to, and the children don't have to pay tax on it. Wow! So that's a that's a significant tax savings for me because it's a you know it's a it's a viable expense for my business. Um, but they have to be. Doesn't the IRS frown on it, and uh, does it raise uh, flags for them? No, it's it's again as long as you. You know, I, I, I always tell my clients that I always say we want to do this legally. So, so, so there's certain rules. Um, and in, in my situation, um, for, for my kids, um, you know, as long as I follow the rules, and then, then you can do that. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's not for everybody because if they, if there's, there's like four rules. If they, if there's one of them that they don't, that doesn't apply, then, then we can't do it for them. Okay, but um, there's, there's many things that, that you can do, even, you know, even from the standpoint of when they're, like for example, when a child is seven or eight years old, I tell my clients, hey, listen, pay them two thousand dollars a year to clean their room, to um, Clean, you know, clean the house. Now, you can't deduct it as a business owner, but the child could claim it as income and then could turn around and put that in an IRA account for, for themselves. And it's one of the ways you can save for college and you can start putting tax-free money away every year for your child when they get to a certain age. And they don't have to pay Social Security tax on that money as well. Oh, Bill, what's the name of your book? The name of my book is called Bad Luck or Bad Business, The 13 Most Common Tax Mistakes Made by Business Owners. It's on Amazon. Uh, there's the electronic version of it. Um, it's also on my website, William Cummings, C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S, that is, CFO.com, and there's a link on there that links it to Amazon as well. well Bill, I'm, I'm going to invite you back um, because uh, I think you have a lot to tell our audience. And I want to thank okay. you for coming on. Tonight. Okay, Don. Well, I want to thank you too. It's always beneficial, and 
uh, I don't know if you can tell by this, but I'm very, very passionate about what I do, and I really want to change everybody's per- perceptions of accountants. So <laughs> I'm trying one <laughs> one person at a time. What's the first word out of a CFO's mouth? No. That's what I learned. <laughs> You know what, I, and I have to tell you, uh, I, I tell my clients, when I was a CFO of a large company, I was the no guy. And now yeah. when I own my business, I'm more of an encourager to tell people, figure out what your risks are, minimize it, and then if you're 85% comfortable, go for it. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. And, uh, okay, have Don, a- have a great evening. We'll talk to you later. I see our next guest is on the line. And I've just made uh, – welcome to the show. Introduce yourself. Uh, hi, Don. My name is Eric Granoff, and I'm uh, Vice President of Corporate Communications and Managing Director for the Expert Bail Network. Well, I have to tell you, when, uh, when uh, a note came across my desk about you, uh, your company is the one company that I don't think any of us ever want to encounter, bail bonds. <laughs> Uh, uh, but uh, I, I want to say, uh, I wanna, wanted you on the program because you have an uh, interesting thing. You, you provide a vital service to, to, the, to uh, people, but you also, uh, unfortunately, suffer image problems and uh, the industry as a whole. And uh, as you say here, you, you maintain public awareness for his company while combating the numerous negative stereotypes of people have towards bail bondsmen. So uh, I thought you'd make an interesting guest. So welcome to the program. Well, well, thank you. And after your last guest, um, I think he'll see the situation as an accountant uh, a little bit easier than a bail bondsman. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but we always ask our guests to say, to say a little bit about themselves personally. So our audience gets a little um, uh, feel for who they are as a person. Okay. Um, I've been with the company that I'm at for about five years now, and uh, my background is in um, marketing and communications and brand building. Um, I've been doing it for about 23 years now. Um, I have two young children of my own, and... uh, you know, for someone that uh, didn't really know a lot about the criminal justice system or, you know, the bail bond industry um, five years ago, uh, the things that I know now about this industry, um, they're things that you, you really want other people to know and understand. Because like you said, it's, you know, everyone's first impression is it's something I never want to know about. But when you really begin to meet the people who actually do this for a living, um, and you begin to see the reasons why they do it and how they do it. It really, it, it, it's not what you see on TV, and it really makes you feel good about being part of a, a group of people that really, at the end of the day, they're helping families get out of a difficult situation. Well, we're going to let you uh, talk about that. But the reason I asked you on the program is because you, you have a, a tough branding job to do, and we want to talk a little bit about how you do it. But uh, first, um, I think uh, explain for our, our audience what the what the obstacles are and how you how you overcome them. I'm sure that, uh, well, there's a lot to learn. Well, uh, you know, if you think about it, like kind of coming in day one, you know, five years ago to try to say, okay, here's this this industry, the bail bond industry. Let's let's just tell people that it's different. It's not what they see on TV. Um, you know, that might be okay to do that if it was an industry that was brand new but you you know we all can think back to the movies that we've seen over the you know decades um the crime novel uh, uh, novels that have been written over the last several decades that pretty much all position the bail industry for for lack of a better word is is you know kind of no no better than the criminals that they're they're scumbags they're guys you don't want to be around and you know, your only image you see is a guy running through the streets with a gun with a bulletproof vest on chasing down bad guys. And so when you have a negative image like that, um, you know, it, it, it is a, a pretty big challenge to try to teach people, um, you know, that it's not true and to teach them the truth about um, an industry that 
like you said before, that like you never really want to know a bail agent because you hope you never have to need one. But, you know, if you were ever in the position that you would need one, you, you, you really wish you probably would have known one at that point. So, um, you know, and, and, and how we tackle that challenge was something that we thought long and hard about was, listen, if what's being told about this industry is incorrect, what if what is if being told about this industry is a dramatization of a small percentage and being glorified and dramatized? Um, let's combat that by telling the truth. Let's go out there and tell the real stories of bail agents. Let's go out there and talk about the good things that they do in their community. Let's go out there and break that stereotype. Simple things like 50%, more than 50% of bail agents in this country are actually women. Um, and it, that's, just, that's, that's one of those statistics that immediately you're like, what, really? But it's, 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 a, it's a career that involves having a very soft, caring side to it because you're working with families that are in a very bad situation. They're upset. They don't know who to turn to. And um, women are very good at working with, with, with these families. Now, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, that's fascinating. But, um, uh, you know, the, there's people like the Stephanie Blum, Plum uh, series, uh, um, which are funny. And interesting. Yeah. But, uh, um, but, uh, but so the first thing you do is try to say the positive side of uh, of, uh, of your particular industry. That's one of one of your key ways of doing it. Am I did I hear yeah. correctly? Yeah. Well, well you, you tell the positive side, but then you also educate people about what bail really is, and. You know, the, the perception is it's just letting, it, you know, the bail agent is making the decision just to let a bad guy out of jail. But that, that's not really how it works. Is that ultimately, it's a judge who determines whether someone can have a bail. Okay? And when that bail amount is set, the family either has the choice, say it's a $10,000 bond, to put up that full amount of the bond with the court. Um, and a lot of people don't have $10,000 to do that. Or you can go to a commercial bail agent and you can pay them a premium. It, it, you know, it pretty much is exactly like an insurance policy. You'll pay a 10% premium to them, uh, so $1,000, and then you, the person can get out. They can go to their, they can continue to go to their job, take care of their family, um, go to their court dates, and as soon as that court case is disposed of and it's finished, then the person is, you know, hopefully free to go, um, or you know, w w whatever happens. But it's a way for them to get out. Now, if that person doesn't show up, then they're on the hook for the full amount of the bail. So, and that's what makes bail so effective, is that when you have a bail agent, what they're pretty much doing is they're ensuring that that person who was released before their trial, that they're going to show up for court. And if they don't show up, the bail agent's going to go and get them and bring them back. And we are so effective at what we do. And in fact, of all the different types of release, bail is the most effective way to ensure that people show up. And when someone shows up for court, what that means is there's not a bunch of people sitting around waiting for someone who doesn't show up. The victim of whatever crime was committed, that victim gets a chance at justice because if that person doesn't show up, there is going to be no trial and they don't get a chance at justice. So just that understanding that role of what a bail agent does, you begin to see that they actually play a pretty important part in the criminal justice system. So educating them about that process and getting them to understand that that role, it's a pretty noble and a pretty, you know, it, it, they have to be professional, professionals. Um, and they're very much like, you know, insurance agents. They are insurance agents that are selling insurance policies that are backed by large insurance companies that are guaranteeing that this person's going to show up for court. And if they don't, we're going to make sure they show up for court. And if they don't, then we'll pay the full amount to the court. Well, uh Having been a police reporter, um, I, I'm, uh, I'm aware of the uh, uh, justice system. And uh, where, I, where I saw work and where bail bondsman is when someone who's not a career criminal, somehow like a drunken driving or um, uh, 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 auto accident or uh, uh, fight, etc. Um, but how do you go about how, how does a, some, uh, a bail bonds woman or bail bondsman go about deciding uh, whether to, to do the bail or not? And are they obligated to do it even if, the, if it's against their good, better judgment? Well, no. I mean, 
most bail agents will tell you this, is that if someone has come there and, and a bail has been determined, that a judge, someone who's in a position to make that, that, that determination, has decided that this person is not a risk if they put up this amount of money, that it's going to guarantee that they show up. Anyone who is a really a risk to society, that they're dangerous, they're not going to be bailed. They're not, a bail won't be set for them, or it'll be so high they can't get out. So right off the bat, a bail agent's making the assumption that someone's determined this guy's not dangerous. Now, the bail agent's also going to make their own, you know, do their own research. They're going to look at, um, they're going to talk to family members. You know, what, you know, does this guy have a job? Does this guy, what, what's his education like? Does he have children? Does he own a home in, in the neighborhood? And you're also going to get family members to be part of that bond, you're underwriting it. I mean, you got to remember it. The bail agent is selling an insurance policy. If he doesn't like the risk associated with that insurance policy, he's not going to underwrite it. He's not going to sell it. So at the end of the day, it's going to come down to um, what that bail agent's comfortable with in terms of that risk. And, yes, they do turn down certain bonds that they think are too risky. Um, just like an, an insurance agent might turn down someone's auto policy because someone's too risky. So um, they, they really are you know, business people that are in a profession that they – try to underwrite that risk and understand as much as they can about a person by talking to as many people as they can, family members, friends, people that will vouch for that person, um, so that if that person, they do bail them out and they do decide that they're not going to show up for court, that that bail agent has enough people, we call it a circle of influence or a circle of love around that person to make sure that they're going to show up for court or that you have enough people that know where that person might be or enough people that say, you know what, I don't want to lose, you know, you know, be responsible for that money because I vouch for Johnny. I'm going to make sure that he shows up too. I'm going to go get him, or I'll tell him. You know, tell the the, the bail agent where he is. So, I mean, that's in terms of that process. The bail agent really does decide, um, you know, who who they want to bail out and who they don't. Much like any other insurance agent when they're writing a policy. Well, you know, I never looked, thought of a bond bondsman as an insurance agent until you just told me. So you've educated one person at least in society tonight. Um, but um, we have a case here in New Jersey where um, the man's parents put up their house as collateral for the, uh, for the bond, uh, for the bail. But mm-hmm. when does that come into play? Well, the, the reason they put up the, the house was they, they wait, wait, say, say it's a very large bond. Um, the bail agent will want to take you know, collateral or as much of the value of that bond in case the person doesn't show up. He wants to make sure and he incentivizes them that they know they're going to lose something if they don't show up, just like the bail agent has taken that risk, too. So the house was taken as part of the, um, you know, the, the, the underwriting of that bond to ensure that, you know, to, to secure it financially. So like any other you know, policy you might do, you're going to secure that policy financially to incentivize that person to show up. And you incentivize the family members who potentially own that house that if he doesn't show up, they're going to help you find him or they're going to make sure that he goes to court. So, like I said, what that does is it helps, in, you know, kind of finish that circle of influence or the circle of love to really make that bail process work because you get other people involved, other people that are um, connected to that bond and that defendant. Well, let me ask, but let me, in this particular case, um, the, the reason I know about it is they're dragging it out. If it's an insurance policy and you're taking a risk, the bail bondsman, the controversy now is the the bail bondsman is trying to take the house uh, from the uh, from the parents, the, the man's yeah. kicked out. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I can't I can't talk to that specific case, but I mean, it, it, you know, if if someone puts up a house as collateral, um, you know, my understanding is that you know that that becomes part of the deal and. Uh, if the person absconds, they're, they're saying that they're putting a lien against this house, saying if this person doesn't show up, we're going to guarantee that we're going to financially make you whole based on the agreement we signed with you. So, you know, based on whatever agreement they had with that bail agent, like I said, I can't talk specifically to that situation. It's really going to depend on that, you know, that unique situation and that uh, agreement they have with that person. But, you know, bail agents just can't come take your house. Well, tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you do to change people's perception. Of, of yeah, no. and, I'm, and I'm glad you asked. You know, we, we do a lot of things on, on social media. We use Facebook a lot because it's a really good way to, to reach out to a lot of people. Um, we do a daily blog, um, and we do a lot of funny stories about people getting arrested for funny things, and um, that drives a lot of traffic to our site. And it gets people, you know, 
just trying to get someone to come to a, a bail bond site to educate them about bail isn't the easiest task in the world. So we try to use humor and interesting things to drive people there, and then they you know, can, can navigate around the site as they want once they're there. So we use Facebook, but we also we, we tell the stories of bail agents. And there's a section of our site called Making the Difference, and we go out and we interview our agents that are in our network, and they tell us these incredible stories about things they do in their communities. I mean, there's a bail agent in... Uh, Pomona, California, who started a nonprofit to help young teenage girls that happen to uh, get pregnant, help them stay in school and not drop out of school. Um, so they get them scholarships and things like that and help support them. Um, we have bail agent just at Christmas time out in Virginia in Richmond who gives out 8,000 toys on Christmas Eve to kids that aren't going to get prisons that night. So it's a you know pretty... And he does this just because it's what he wants to do. He knows that he's part of that community. I mean, most bail agents are in a specific community because they grew up there. They know everybody there. They're local there. So, and, and, and it was probably their father's business before them and their father's father's business before them. So there's a very strong tie to the community that these bail agents have. So we want to tell those stories. And we do it on our site. We do it in social media. Um, I I talk to people like you, and I and I, I get on radio programs. So we do things like that. We write articles for um, newspapers and stories, but really just trying to to change people's perception. That listen, when 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 if you ever find yourself in trouble and you go to a bail agent, don't think that you're going to run into a guy that, that you know that don't, don't mix up fugitive recovery or bounty hunting with what a bail agent does because they're very different things, and the majority of time people show up and the people that you're going to meet and work with are professionals they're family people um so we just we really try to get that story out through a variety of different ways well um tell us a little bit about your company well expert bail um it was it's it actually it's the first national brand in the bail bond industry it was an idea we had um we're a little over three years old now um uh, I also work with uh, the, the nation's largest underwriter of uh, bail in the country, insurance company called AIA, and this is a network that we created. It's a little bit like if you were to combine the Better Business Bureau and the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval, that's what we wanted to create. We wanted to be able to say, listen, let's educate people about bail, okay? Let's give them a list of agents and agents that we could actually stamp with the, the expert bail brand to say, that these guys are trusted professionals. These are people that you can go to and you know that you're going to get a good deal. Um, and then basically have a site where you can find these guys. And so we have the site, expertbail.com, where you can go and learn about bail. You can read our blog. You can read stories about these guys um, and, and, and women. And, uh, you know, and if you need to find a bail agent, you can any, any state in the, or every, every zip code, every county, you type in that county or that zip code, and uh, an, a list of agents will show up. I'll 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 made it through our, our review process and then you call it and you can get out and you know, work with that agent. So it's just something we did to to really try to like I said get that word out and give people a real easy tool on a national scale that which never existed before. Um, and and you, you might see people talk about nationwide and all this stuff, but the reality is we're we're the only one because we're you know we're with the insurance company we write bail and all 46 states that commercial bail can be written. So we're able to bail somebody out through our network in, in any state. Hello? Sorry, sorry about that. Um, tell, us okay. about your, um, tell us about your, your website and your uh, social media uh, account. Yeah, uh, it's expertbail.com is the website. Um, and like I said, you know, the, the, a good part of the site where we get a lot of visits, we had actually 210,000 people on our blog page um, last month in December. Um, and that's, that's where we tell our funny stories. Um, if you want to learn more about the bail agents, go into the Making a Difference section. Uh, you can go into our social media, which is our Facebook page. We have about 20,300 fans, I think, on Facebook. Um, and that's where we have a lot of links to our blogs as well. And then we're also on, you know, Google+, LinkedIn, um, all those different places. Well, I, I really appreciate that you came on. Um, you came on on short notice, and I'm glad you came because I certainly learned a lot, and I hope our audience does. 
And no offense, man, but I hope I never do business with you. <laughs> but now you know if you need to, you know who to call. Uh, that, that's true. Have a nice day, and thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. Our next guest should be Sean Castrina. He's a successful business coach and a true entrepreneur. Sean, are you with us? Yeah, I'm right here. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, um, I'm glad you joined us uh, tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but uh, first we always ask our guests to say a little bit about themselves personally and, and who they are and where the, how they got to where they are now. So the, the okay. floor is yours. All righty. Well, you know, about 20 years ago I got into starting businesses. First business was a small detailing company and just want to make some part-time money and thought it, you know, thought it'd be a good idea to, to, to start something that I could run very passively and and it was called Waxmaster Mobile Detailing. I started that, it, you know, it did much more successful than I ever thought it, it could and from there, my wife and I moved to Virginia. We started a direct mail magazine and that took off. I had that in 23 cities and while I was doing that, I started a home improvement company and you know from there I started another one and another one and and next I started a retail store and just you know just started started a lot of businesses and most of them succeeded and you know at some point I I just wanted to kind of figure out well you know why why were so many failing and you know I was having pretty good luck with the ones I was starting and so from there, I decided to, you know, to write a book. After I read every book I could get my hands on about how to start a business, to kind of, you know, see what they were saying I was supposed to do, and seeing if maybe if I did some of it by accident. And if I hadn't read those books, I probably wouldn't have started any of my businesses because they made it seem a lot more difficult than I thought it really needed to be to start a successful business. And you know, as they say, the rest is history. So what have you learned uh, that you do right? that you want other people to know about? I, I think the key, the most important thing is, is that I didn't start a, a business completely based on passion. I, I looked for areas in the market that were, where there was a potential for profit. So the key, the key thing is I didn't start any businesses based on emotion, based on, you know, I love golf. It doesn't mean I start a driving range. You know, I, I love tennis. It doesn't mean... You know, I, I go buy a bubble and start, you know, trying to broker out lessons or, or things of that nature. I found niches in the marketplace where I saw a need. And then I did the initial homework, you know, the investigation to find out if I thought a business that I would start with could be number one or number two within my marketplace. Obviously, if you're in a massive city, that might, might be, the goal may be to be in the top five. But I, I did the due diligence up front, going into it, knowing or thinking that, I could, that our business would be number one or number two. And, and I think that if I didn't think it could be number one or number two, I didn't start it. So, well, I, I, you know, that was important to me to know that we could be good. Let me ask you this question. How do you do your due diligence? Everybody comes in here and says, do due diligence. How did you do your due diligence? A, I wrote down, you know, the simple ways, I took out a legal sheet of paper and a phone book, and I wrote down, if I was going to start a, a handyman company, for one, I wrote down every handyman company that I had heard advertised, that I, you know, I didn't care necessarily that they were in the phone book, but I, I had either seen on TV, radio, Valpac, whatever the case may be, if they, if they had advertised, I viewed them as a credible competitor. And I wrote them on a, down on a sheet of paper. Then I did business with them, or I called them, or I went and visited. Whatever business it was, I researched that individual business to find out where they were good and where they were weak. And I would not start a business where if I felt like all five of the ones that I called were had a pretty good stronghold. There was nothing weak in what they were offering. I didn't see where I could have any competitive advantages. I wouldn't start that business, and I would talk myself out of it. I'd say, no, I mean, they're doing it well. You know, I'd love to have this business, but I, 
I don't think there's anything that I'm going to offer that's going to be that much better or even better at all than what they're already doing. So I only started businesses where there was a need and I could have that competitive advantage. The biggest thing I researched was competitive advantage and and price. If I if I couldn't, you know, be competitive price-wise and have a competitive advantage, again, if I didn't think it could be number one or number two, we didn't, I didn't get into it. I, I just bowed out. And, and I that kept me from not starting a lot of businesses that I wanted to start because, again, I felt like it was, um, you know, the marketplace was saturated or, you know, there was already some pretty competitive foes out there. So researching the existing businesses in your area, in my opinion, is absolutely the critical area that most people fail in. They, they get so set on what they want to start that they're blind to what already exists. And I think it's a kiss of death move. Yeah, it's very interesting. We've had people uh, on the show and uh, who have been successful or uh, are advisors, and they all say, be passionate about your uh, your business. Um, it's overplayed. That, that, word is a, that word's way too over. It works great in marriage. It doesn't work great in business. That's a great line. Can I steal it? <laughs> yeah, you, you can have that, line. but it's the truth. I'm passionate <laughs> about my wife and kids. I'm not. Pa- I do not get in. I don't own one business based on emotion. And I and it, and the key to that is if you'd have told me coming out of college, I would own any of the businesses I own. I if you'd have put them on a sheet of paper, they wouldn't have been in my top fifty that I would have written down leaving college. I completely start businesses based on potential for profit. There is no emotion at all in them. You know, I did, you know, it's just, one of the you know, best things I keep them, heard on this program. Like, what's that again? What, what you just said is one of the best things I've heard on this program. Well, great. Uh, I, 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 I appreciate it. You know, it's a good illustration. I just think about this real quick. Larry Ellison, you know, founder of, of Oracle. Okay, he, he wins all these yacht races now. You know, he's, I guarantee you at 18 years old, yacht, uh, racing yachts was not a passion he had. Hey, you know what? When you make $18 billion, you'll bump into a few passions you never thought you'd have. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, what's the name of your book? It's called The Eight Unbreakable Rules for Business Startup Success. That's The Eight Unbreakable Rules for business startup success and it's you know reached as high as number three on Amazon in its category new ventures and and it also has a companion workbook which is unique because when I wrote the book I wanted to you know put a step-by-step how to do everything you know fill in the blanks because I, I saw the the um, golly the uh, golly, the business plan it seems so complicated in every book I read I was like my golly if I had to do a business plan I would have never started one of my businesses it seems so ridiculously daunting you know it was like a homework assignment that I would have never did in school so I did a workbook and and just a really simple step-by-step and it's it's laid out in almost in just a fun very graphically friendly I had a really top-notch guy work you know, put it together for me um, based on the book, and we worked together on it, and it really made a better book because after I did the workbook, I had to go back and rewrite my book a little bit and organize it a little differently. So, you know, it just flows together. It's a, it's a practical book on how you start businesses, and I've done it. You know, I've started over 15 businesses, and, you know, I started a business this year. This year I said I was going to slow down since I wrote the book. You know, I've, I'm on my second business in the last 12 months, so... I'm always starting businesses. How do you manage them? Do you start them and then hire managers? I, uh, I hire or partner always. The, the, you know, it's one of my rules in the book. The biggest reason, one of the big reasons why small businesses don't grow is they, you know, you, you, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. You don't hire family members and you don't hire friends. You, 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 you hire expertise or you partner with expertise. But you can't. You have got to have great people working with you, and that is one of the ways that I, I I find businesses that I start. I'll just meet someone, or somebody will be within my organization 
that I think has potential, and I'll and I'll you know add a division, or I'll hunt the marketplace over, and I'll I'll, I'll be like, oh, you know, there's an opening for a business like A, and and I'll I'll take somebody who's already proven themselves on my staff and go, you know, I love to partner with you in this, and I create, you know, I'm like, I'll bankroll it financially. You know, yours is more of a sweat equity situation, but I want you to run it. So I, I'm just really, really big on hiring super smart people with tons of energy who want to work hard, and, and, and I pay them, you know, more than what they ask for. Well, uh, you sound passionate about the book. Why are you passionate about the book that you wrote? Because it's because I've read all the rest of them, and if there isn't one, then I need to read it. But I put my hands on every startup book you can possibly put your hands on, and read them, and they just don't work. They, their books are they're complicated, they're daunting. They're they're not the guy either started one business, and then he, maybe they felt like that made them able to start a business, and they started one 20 years ago. You know, I love Jack Welch of GE, but he shouldn't be telling anybody how to start a business. I can't run GE, but I, Jack Welch, you know, probably couldn't run a lot of small businesses. And I know it sounds crazy. I mean, this Jack Welch, you know, runs, you know, you know millions of employees. Yeah, but he's never had to reach meet, meet a personal payroll every Friday that came out of his checking account. That's very you know, true. So, yeah, so I mean, I, I, wrote, I wrote the business. My book's written so that if you can't afford to fail, you want to read my book because that's how I wrote it. I wrote it with, with that in mind. I have a group of guys I play poker with, and they're all entrepreneurs. And we always talk about, well, why has our businesses done so well? And, and they're retail businesses, they're home service businesses, and, and my friends are millionaires. And, and if you looked around our poker table, you would never think of it. But we all do extraordinarily well, and and we just kind of do certain things, you know, well, you know. And but none of us started a business except one of us. I apologize, out of passion, you know. You know, seven of us down there, only one started a business based on passion. So I, I think the book offers just a unique set of rules that if you follow them. You're gonna you 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 get the the odds so in your favor. I I have to have you back on the program sometime soon, and we got we have to talk more. But you, well, uh, I, I, you're a terrific guest. I'd love to do it. And just a couple quick rules, just just to get people to know this. If you're not successful as a per, the first rule, I'm just gonna give you the first rule because it's a game changer. Think about this. The number one rule is you must be right to own a business. The point is this. If I give an idiot the idea for Google, he's still going to screw it up. He's still going to screw it up. I give him a billion dollars in venture capital and hand him a good idea, and they're still going to screw it up. And we all know people like that. You give a smart person with some energy and some ambition who's organized with some good basic people skills and some, some just some go get them, you give them half a good idea and they make it work. The number one rule that I have in my book is the individual has to be right to start a business. And then I go through the key steps to be the kind of guy that's going to be successful. And then there's seven other ones in there. So it's the eight unbreakable rules for business startup success. And the website is newbizcoach.org. Come back again and let's talk more. I, I uh, you may not, you say this passionate, but I've seldom heard someone more passionate about their book than you. <laughs> well, listen, I'd lo- love to be back. I'd love to be back on it a- anytime because I, I love talking about this subject. Uh, well, you, you do a good job at it. Thank you. Oh, and, and great, thank you. Again. All right, take care. Good evening. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell us.
others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.